That was a work by Panayotis Kokaras called Cycling, performed by Meg Griffith on the opening night of Texas New Music Festival 2023. Welcome to Relevant Tones. I'm Stephen Anthony Rawson, and I just made it home from Houston after attending the week-long Texas New Music Festival held at the Midtown Arts and Theater Center Houston. Throughout the week, I got to chat with many people involved in the festival, from attendees and students to guest musicians and lecturers. Altogether, TNMF put on six concerts, 10 lectures, and a film screening, and included 20 composer participants. So on this, the first of a two-part episode, we will feature Chad Robinson, composer and artistic director of Texas New Music Ensemble, and Meg Griffith, who in addition to being the festival's guest performing artist, is a registered yoga instructor and gave a terrific lecture on wellness. We have lots of conversations and new music to feature, so let's dive right in. I'm sitting here in Matchbox 2's sound booth. I'm here with Dr. Chad Robinson. He is the artistic director of the Texas New Music Ensemble, and we're here for the Texas New Music Festival 2023. Chad is also the guest composer, composer lecturer here, has been leading the focal groups and the round tables discussions with composers has an awesome assignment he's given them uh, an assignment that I've taken up actually on my own and it's a very important thing to think about and we're going to talk about the festival a bit so Chad just tell me a little bit about this is the ninth year of Texas New Music Ensemble tell me a little bit about like how did Texas New Music Ensemble start yeah it was strange so I mean I'll give you I guess kind of the longer story um in my undergrad, there was a class composers had to take where we were kind of the assistant, like a stage manager kind of, but not even anything that high and lofty. It's like a helper yeah. with the new music ensemble. So it was kind of moving the chairs in between sets, um, making copies of parts, really simple stuff. And Rob Smith, who you've probably talked to already, uh, he, he was the director, so we kind of worked under him. And it was interesting because, you know, to be honest, at the time being so young, it was kind of a pain, and <laughs> I can't say, you know, at the time that I was like, this, I, you know, I'm, I'm just going to be a composer. I don't know why I need to learn all this. Why am I taking this class? Um, little by little, as my life went on, it had this incredible impact. And the first one was going to grad school. I received a big scholarship to actually be an assistant to the director of their new music ensemble. And I was at Carnegie Mellon University. And it was all based on this knowledge I had built working with Rob Smith for years. Then, when I went to my PhD, I went to uh, King's College London, and there's no conservatory there. It's just a similar program to like Harvard or Columbia. So if you want concerts, you have to put them on yourself. Um, and so I did. And this was really the first time I was in charge of a concert. And it was during my time there that I realized one day that I could do it. <laughs> like I could just put on my own concerts. I don't believe it. And so uh, before I even came back, I was in my final year, so I knew that I was coming back to Houston. Um, I just started mapping it out in my head. Started thinking of like, well, okay, budgeting, how, how can I raise money? Um, quickly you learn that you just can't do it on your own. So I put together my board of directors actually um, while I was in London. And I, and I made a list of the people I wanted. And then within two days of landing back in Houston, I had met with all of them. And uh, the ones that accepted the deal came on, and that'd be Sam Cole, who's our co-founder, and he's on our board of directors still. Um, an old, old friend that I just 
could not have built this without, you know, I could handle the artistic aspect, but he comes from a business background and he was able to kind of build a business strategy and, and he really taught me how to make a better budget and how to um, keep track of just all the little things, etc. And he did it the first couple years and slowly but surely as I was learning from him, I, I took it over and then we did our first concert, we organized in 2013, prepared for a year, fundraising and everything, first concert 2014. Wow. And then we just went from there, adding concerts. Um, <clears throat> at our height, pre-COVID, we were doing as many as 12 to 13 concerts a year. <laughs> and we were doing them, we had four to five in Houston, and then we were doing a small tour around the state, so we were all over. Um, of course, you know, COVID changed everything with the shutdown, um, so we had to reassess. And actually out of that was born Texas New Music Festival. Oh, that's good. Um, kind of reallocating how we wanted to do things and if we wanted to keep kind of traveling or if we wanted to bring people here. It's a bigger change than you think because the point is really to be in Houston, but then to travel out and you know, kind of bring our ensemble throughout the state. And then it became, or now it is really bringing people from all over the world here to work with us and to work with Texas musicians. So um, that's the long and short of it, I suppose. No, I, wow, that's great. I, I had no idea. Twelve to thirteen concerts a year is insane. I oh, don't it, yeah. I mean, it was busy and and all over. So you know, just logistics of how how are we going to get there? Are we going to meet? Yeah. Uh, hotel rooms, trying to figure out all of that. Um, it's a lot. It's a lot. This is a lot too, but it's different. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember something uh, when I was finishing up my. Um, undergraduate degree in, in composition, uh, I was really excited about a new music ensemble, and my composition teacher handed me an article that said, so you want to start a new music ensemble? And I was like, oh, well, at least, you know, I, this is something I'm excited about, we'll think about more, but it's not that easy. It's not, you know, and one of the big things when Martine and I were kind of structuring this was uh, making sure we had in an educational component outside of the music itself, yeah. you know, um, and that was a big deal. It was we have to have something to do with entrepreneurship, um, and not everyone's that necessarily comes is interested in that. So it's something you can sign up for to do, and then pretty much you get to build an idea, a kind of make believe idea, but make a attach a real budget attach a real strategy for fundraising etc and then they get opportunity to make the pitch to me as a donor and then i give them feedback on their pitch and then as well as you know the structure of their budget um likelihood of it etc so that's really exciting and i think a component of this festival um and in academia entrepreneurship in music is becoming bigger and bigger um some there are composition programs out there that actually have mandatory courses in some type of entrepreneurship and I think that's a great idea and so we wanted to make sure that was a part of this as well yeah I mean it's invaluable information you need to find people you need to get I feel like um I feel like Meg even in her lectures was saying some similar things about find a flute player yeah find a you need I mean, to you really I think have to be enterprising you know I think you know there was once a time and I'm not even going that far back but there's once a time where you could just be really good at composing and you would just get that faculty job that pay the bills and you would just only be a composer. And I think that's just, you know, there's some people that will be very lucky and just do that. But most of us know we have to make our own opportunities. And at the end of the day, I think that's better. You know, like 
there's so much control in that in that scenario where you're just a composer. You're not in control of who's playing music, right? It has to get to a publisher. The publisher is going to make these deals with these organizations, these ensembles, etc. And you're just sitting there hoping that somebody's going to pick up your piece. Why? You know, get out there, make it happen yourself. And it's a lot of work, and it's going to take some training, and you're going to fail. But you're going to get better and better, and eventually, you know, you get to control your own destiny as a composer. And hopefully that, those activities will actually lead to maybe a big publishing contract or whatever it may be, you know. Um, but that's something we really want to focus on is what are you going to do as soon as you finish school and you, you're not full-time professor of composition somewhere. You know, you, you got to do something. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's what, one of the things we wanted to do here is make sure we um, gave them at least a foundation. It's a small one-week festival, so but at least a foundation into what to think about as they go forward. Yeah. It's great to teach people or to teach the, the people coming here that there are so many ways that you can uh, make opportunities to connect with people. It doesn't have to be any one route, even though you teach at Texas A&M Kingsville and you, uh, there are people here from um, King's College. You know, there are mm -hmm. people you brought from your network uh, oh, yeah. in a way here. You know, to, I mean, Rob Smith is here as a, uh, one yeah. of our guest composers and, you know, and I, I alluded to that when I was giving my lecture. I mean, you know, that must have been unreal for him, you know, to try to, I don't know if he can think that far back, I barely can, but to try to imagine me as that kid that was annoyed doing that backstage work to now being the person that runs this festival and I'm the one that brought him in, you know? He made a little comment about it. Yeah. It's kind of funny, he's like, yeah, I didn't think, uh, I didn't <laughs> yeah, think Chad was gonna succeed and I was so wrong. That's exactly it's, what he said. I mean, it's true, you know, it's hard to kind of even picture yourself, I think, you know, we're talking, well, I don't want to say, it's a good time ago, I won't say how long, but um, you know, it's hard to, for me to even imagine that person, you know? Just being that young is, is very different. And of course, I think like all other composers then, I was just going to be a composer. I didn't need it. Someone else was going to do this other work, you know? Yeah. And that's just, not, that's just not the case. So, yeah, he's one. Um, Ed Nesbitt, of course, came from uh, London. And so him and I were colleagues. We were both PhD candidates there at King's. Became good friends. Really, really enjoyed each other's music. So we'd often meet for beers after concerts, just talk shop about uh, each other's pieces, etc. And had kind of stayed in touch throughout the years. And then, yeah, we had a spot. He had a great piano work that was unpremiered and but I'd had the score and I said you know we can put this on the festival and he is now on the faculty at King's it's been so long he's gone full circle and he's teaching there now and he was like I bet they'll fund me to come there and give a lecture and do the piece so really cool to kind of bring in all these components from from your past and one of the things I was really I was hoping I imparted to the young composers here was just don't take anyone you meet for granted, you know, like you don't know where that's gonna lead in 20 years. Um, you know, people say life is short, I'm always like, no, life is long and you, you can't see what's, you know, you can imagine a few years ahead, but you really don't know what's gonna happen. And you don't know where these people are gonna, how they're gonna impact your life later on, you know? Yeah, well, there are a lot of composers here. Yes. <laughs> there are a lot of people as participants and there are a lot of people as lecturers here. So participants, there are 20, is that right? Yes, 20 composers. 20 composer participants. And then I know uh, Martin Blessinger has, has given a lecture so far. Ed Nesbitt, who we talked about, has given a lecture so far. You've given a lecture. Meg Griffith, who plays flute, gave a flute lecture and a wellness lecture. Those were both excellent. Um, 
Who are some of the other composers who are here? So we'll have um, Kareem Alzan. Oh, He's yeah. on the faculty at Rice. So he was here opening night because he had a, uh, his Tarantella for solo pianos performed. And he'll be giving a lecture on Saturday over his own music and kind of whatever topic he has. Um, another very cool one is Tim Cousin, who's a music theorist at University of Houston, is coming. And he's done a great deal of research into um, Takamitsu and Meseon. And so he'll be talking. I don't know. We left it up to him. I told everyone, like, something about this is what we want, but the specifics are up to him. So we'll see what he does. But we're really excited to, you know, obviously we want to have a ton of composers. Um, but it's cool to have, make sure you have flute and have someone doing something on health and wellness. And yeah. then to have him coming. So we're excited about that. And then probably, I think, the big dazzling one. Um, so Felipe Tristan, our guest conductor, is very close with, um, I just call it the estate and kind of the legacy of Carlos Chavez, really the first international composer from Mexico. Um, spent a lot of years in the States, where had big influence on American composers that were young at that time, Copeland, etc. So um, when he was coming as conductor, I said, well, you got to give a lecture on something. What are you going to give the lecture on? And he's like, oh, I want to give it on Carlos Chavez. And he's like, I'm going to reach out to the family, and they have some unpublished works and some other kind of things that I can bring and display. And so I would like to talk about his music, his, his legacy in Mexico, his legacy in America, etc. And then um, one day, I, so we had set this up, you know, months and months ago. And then I get a text. He's like, hey, you got a minute to talk. And I said, yeah, what? And he said, well, great granddaughter of Carlos Chavez she wants to come and she wants to do the talk <laughs> and I'll just insist and yeah I was like well absolutely and so um, he, he pretty much set all of that up I'm on the peripheral of that but she's gonna come and give this just talk about pretty much I think mainly they're gonna focus on his time in America it's an hour and a half lecture so it's our longest spot for a lecture um, so we're just absolutely thrilled about that. And most of our lectures, you know, are for the participants, so like a private event. But that one we've opened up to the public because we want as many people there as possible. Let's hear a piece by one of the composer participants. This is Cameron Johnston's Emergent Patterns. Thank you. 
in addition to being the artistic director, I mean, I, I think I heard the number 98%. You raised 98% of the funds for this. Yeah, um, that's just how it goes. Right. <laughs> I'll warn you now, if you ever start your own project, yeah, the fundraising is... It's really hard to pass that over to someone else. So as of this point, I'm writing the grants, the board of directors, and everyone who, all of our donors, you know, it's personal relationships are how you really build it. Um, you can do some, um, like, broad-based fundraising, Facebook fundraisers, things like that. Um, we do that, and those are good. But, like, the really big donations that you count on every year that you need to even just start your year. Those are personal relationships you build over years. And some of those people I knew before and other ones I met along the way. And, you know, just I just talked them into coming to a concert. And you go from there. Now, there is group effort. Um, so our board of directors, we all do everything we can to fundraise. So some people do go out and bring in um, money on their own. Sharon Shirley Milius has just joined our board, and her actual whole goal in the board is raising money specifically for scholarships. So um, all the money that I've raised really has gone to the ensemble, so it's kind of getting donors to support concerts and paying the musicians. And what she's very interested in is education. And so um, when we brought her on, it said, well, we would like you to help fundraise, and she, well, what capacity, etc." And so we talked about that, and then specifically what Am I fundraising? What is she going to be fundraising for? And so we want you with one goal, and that's to raise scholarship money. And she's like, I will excel at that. She's like, I've done other educational things, and that's what I can do, and I know the foundations. I have relationships already. So she's in here for that one specific purpose. So um, this is the first time I've really been able to um, unload some of it. Yeah. But, um, you know, that is um, something she's kind of built to do ed with education and scholarship. So I'm thrilled about that. Um, we keep our tuition as low as possible via the money that I'm able to raise with donors now. But with her support, I mean, she'll be able to do something even much larger than what I'm able to do. I mean, at the end of the day, you kind of hate to say it, but if you don't have the money, whatever your project is, it's not going to happen, right? Yeah. So that's got to be first and foremost and I think you're talking about the book so you want to start a new music ensemble you know I mean I've never read that book but it's got to be page one it's got to be fundraising right because that's really where you got to start I feel like it was a 10 page article I just said no 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 but yeah um, I mean, in addition to doing all of this, you you had a piece on the program last night. Oh know? yes, I mean you had you had Rhapsody Noir, uh, which is for clarinet and piano. It's a great piece. It's very oh, great. thank you, thank you. That was an interesting piece. Oh, so speaking of that and relationships, uh, the clarinet who premiered that, Poppy Badeau, uh, her and I were at Kings together. Nice. And she teaches uh, for the Royal Academy now. But years ago, she she's a little bit younger than me, so she was an undergrad. And when I was doing my PhD, and we became good friends, and we never did any work over there together. And um, years and years later, during COVID, she um, she made this transcription of the Bach Chaconne for clarinet, and she just did it for fun. And she would have these like weekly uh, Skype meetings with her parents, and she would just play something for them, you know, just try to have some nice something nice during that terrible shutdown. And so she just took on this project. And then she went and applied for funding. She made a whole CD out of solo works for clarinet and, I mean, rave reviews in Houston. And so I happened to hear the Chaconne, and I mean, it's just marvelous. She plays it. She didn't create a new score. She plays it from the cello score mm. with her markings. Um, or sorry, from the violin score with her markings. Forgive me. And then, just from hearing that, I just sent her a message like, 
would you want to come play that in Houston? She's like, yeah, how do we do it? And I was like, well, over the past 10 years since the last time I saw you, I've, I've kind of built this way of doing those things. So we were able, I was able to raise some money um, and bring her in. And um, there was a Texas New Music Ensemble concert while she was here, hmm. but there was no way to get her on it because of the rehearsal schedule and she was coming in. But there were other things we could do. Rob Smith was a big part of that. So she performed with Aura at University of Houston, and that's where they premiered this work. Her and Andrea Benevin, who's one of our pianists here for awesome. Texas New Music Ensemble. And we set up a um, solo recital for her at Archway Gallery. Then she did another concert uh, for the Memorial Classical Music Series, her and Andrea. And then she did readings of short clarinet works for all the composition students at University of Houston and premiered those at the Blaffer Art Gallery and they based them on paintings in the current, uh, what was hanging in the gallery. So she did this two-week thing here and we all set it up and it was all based on that Chacon that I happened to hear on social media because yeah. she posted something about it. Pretty, so Pretty freaking cool. Yeah, works, just, so. a, just kind of an unreal thing. I think the whole <clears> thing took us, it took us a year and a half, I think, to kind of plan it all and fund it and all of that. But again, just one of those things you never know where relationships are going to go and... Uh, so when we got it all done, she was like, well, you gotta, you got to write something for her. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I guess I should. So, uh, yeah, I wrote that piece, and, yeah, it's been performed um, in Kingsville. At Texas A&M there, the clarinet professor there did it. Um, Poppy is planning to do it again in London, and, of course, it was performed here last night. So it's already grown some legs all because of the weird Facebook posts that I happened to see. Uh, I think I read somewhere, but I, I tried and tried to find it, uh, did, that you based it on the WC Rhapsody, uh, mm -hmm. or were influenced by it, or yeah. somehow, in some way. Can you tell me a little bit about it? Yeah, okay, so that's a funny one. So, uh, when we decided we were going to ride it, um, Rob decided he wanted to put it on the Aura concert. Uh -huh. And so that concert had been kind of already set. Um, and so the, the theme of that concert was pieces that had been... Um, you're reimagining pieces from the past, kind of. So he calls me and uh, he's like, yeah, so have you started it yet? I was like, nah, I haven't, haven't put a note down. He's like, okay, well, so I'd like you to keep true to our theme. <laughs> I was like, well, what's the theme? And he told me. And Rob knows very well that I try really hard not to sound like any other composer, yeah. you know? <laughs> and, and my music's not, I think the best compliment I ever got was from Leonardo Bellotta. He said, your music is not modernist, really. But at the same time, I've never heard anything like it. And that's how I wanted it to be. So I was like, Rob, you want me to base it off reimagine? You know that, like, that is, I'm totally against that. He's like, yeah, but it's a theme. Just see what you can do, even if it's just kind of, you know, closely related or whatever. And I was like, all right, I'll think it through. Well, then I decided, like, if I'm going to do it, I have to do it, right? So I went back, and there's um, the premier Rhapsody of Debussy's and the Petite Pièce. And uh, both are written uh, within the same year, just about. So they're very, very close to each other. Uh, the petite piece is very short. Um, the rap and the rhapsody is quite short too. But um, so I just listen to them on repeat over and over. You don't really—I mean, it's not you know complex writing, so you don't need a lot of score study, but just listening. And um, he has this incredible motive that I just took <laughs> from the petite piece. This just beautiful little kind of lilting dotted rhythm. And so I just took that, you know, it's a little two, three second snippet. And I was like, well, I'm just gonna spin this, you know? And, and so I did, and what I did was I took his motive that, I mean, it's such a slight motive 
that you don't hear necessarily WC in it. And then I just spun it into a whole new piece. Cool. And so I liked it, but I thought the issue with it was, I was like, you know, it doesn't really relate to WC. You know, it's like I just took this tiny little thing that you couldn't recognize. <laughs> sure. So I was like, well, I got to put something in there that's really, you know, from it. So um, there's a, a truly beautiful moment in um, the premiere Rhapsody um, with this harp like playing on the piano in this kind of high sustained note in the clarinet. And so I, I really just kind of lifted that. And I mean, all the notes are different, but the texture is really just lifted from Debussy. Nice. And I kind of created the climax of my piece. Based on, and it's not the climax of his, it's kind of this almost transitional idea. But I built that as the climax of mine. Um, and so it was really cool. When they premiered it, they did excerpts from the Debussy pieces. So you, they kind of primed you for that motive that's going to spin into this totally mm -hmm. different thing. But then also, you're going to hear this transitional element, but you're going to hear it now as like a massive climax towards the end of the work. Well, Chad, I think we've covered a, a lot of stuff. Is there anything that you want to add that I've, I've missed out on? I'd like to talk a little bit uh, about what we're doing next year for the festival. Please do. Yeah, so um, we have some, some big plans. Um, one of the things, you know, as we go through this first year, we kind of see things we want to do differently, etc. So, A, we're building... Sharon Shirley Miles is building that huge scholarship fund, so be on the lookout for that. Um, and we want to build a larger ensemble. We want to have more large ensemble works. Um, we're doing a lot of chamber works this time, um, duos, trios, and then some larger works. Next time we want to have a whole um, concert of um, large ensemble works, 15, 16 players, looking at trying to do one, like a one of each ensemble. Yeah. And then we're going to have some smaller pieces too. So the big thing we're looking at um, is bringing in more performers, um, more conductors, etc. And then really focusing concerts on here's a concert of you know small chamber music, here's a concert of medium-sized chamber music, and here's a concert of large ensemble stuff. So we're really looking forward to that. And additionally, um, we're looking into creating some full tuition scholarships for performers to help us build that large ensemble. So um, we will start uh, opening applications September 1st, so please be on the lookout for that. Awesome. Thank you so much, Chad. Thanks for taking the time. Uh, absolutely. My pleasure.
Well, Meg, we are still talking about the Texas New Music Festival 2023, where you are the guest artist and you have your hands in so many different things at the festival. It's a little hard to know where to stop, but I am fortunate that I was able to attend your lectures and your performance for the Stars of Texas. Very wonderful music, all of it brand new to me. You also gave a lecture on extended techniques for the flute and mm -hmm. you gave a lecture on wellness, which I thought was phenomenal. These are all things I'd like to ask you about. I think many people, especially musicians, are introduced to wellness um, as a corrective when something's gone wrong and it's gone too far. Can you yeah. tell me a little bit about how, how you got started on your path to promoting wellness, having that be a very important part of your career? Well, actually, I am not that into exercise. Um, I never really have been. so. I never really, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I didn't take care of myself, but I don't think I took the greatest care, especially mentally, especially mentally. Um, so when I went to get my doctorate, uh, when she was at Texas Tech with Lisa Garner-Santa um, in 2009, one of those years, it might've been the first year, but I can't remember exactly which semester, she offered a yoga for musicians class that met once a week. And we, we talked about all sorts of things. So it was not only physical bodily things, we were doing yoga. Um, but we were also doing discussion of the things that happen to artists, up, you know, up in your head and and in your body. And um, so it was my first, probably my first exploration of what it means to actually use my my everything, and uh, and do it in a friendly to myself way. And so that kind of jump started. <clears throat> Excuse me. After that, I got a a my certification in yoga, and it started being kind of inherent in all of my lessons because more than anything, I just didn't want my students to go in directions I went. And I, I've been very lucky in that I have not had, knock on wood, um, too many physical challenges and anything that has come up as I've aged, I've tried to counter. So I've been lucky in that way, but I know a lot of people aren't. So I wanted to be prepared in that way. But then also mentally, which is of course the unseen and something we never like to talk about, although I'm glad that we're starting to talk more about it. I really wanted to make sure my kiddos, <laughs> I say kiddos, some of them are over 50 and 60 years old. So, but you know, um, my mama bears, so, you know, they're my kiddos. Uh, I wanted to make sure that they stay away from some of the, the things that happened in my brain. And so some of it is based in the idea of meditative, I, you know, thoughts regarding like yoga and everything, but also just knowing when we're talking to ourselves in nasty ways and recognizing that's just not useful. I'm not trying to be positive poly. It's just not useful. So that's kind of the direction I ended up going. So I keep on kind of building on that. And uh, I actually got my certification just recently, like, oh gosh, I think I received the certificate right before I left for Houston for trauma yoga, uh, trauma sensitive yoga, which is specific for people who've experienced trauma um, and of all types. And in the musician's world, I think there's plenty who have in various ways. So I plan to implement that too. Something that I noticed about your lecture right away, it, it's remarkably accessible. Um, it seemed- I'm glad anyone, I try. Yeah, anyone can participate in it. It was not strenuous at all. It was very easy that, how you broke down concepts for everyone uh, about being present and avoiding the buzzword ter terminology and explaining this is actually what it's about. And it's easy. And meditation is something you do every day. Do you feel like you encounter a lot of resistance 
from from people into getting into wellness and you have to because of those buzzwords and because there's this maybe this perception that it will be strenuous or it will be difficult i'd say on the physical side the the biggest i don't want to call it resistance it's doubt um yeah Uh, i don't i but at this point i don't think i've really run into anyone who it's a true resistance it's they just think they can't they think they're not flexible or they think that it's not something that maybe either would benefit them or that they would like and one of my main things is that it doesn't have to be yoga yoga happens to be what i like because it makes me feel good and as i say i don't really like exercise so if it makes me feel good then hey but if yours is name your insert any exercise here then go for it you know that's but the idea is that it introduces you to the thought that something could be useful versus i should do it because i need to be a healthy person you know and so the probably just the idea that i can't is the resistance i suppose if you want to call it that on the physical side and then mentally we're all afraid of meditation because we're supposed to be something at it successful whatever that means and then we aren't and we're a failure and so we don't try again um, and we don't know where to start but everybody says you should do it but then they don't talk about how it's the same with as you mentioned the buzzwords like gratitude when i was introduced to yoga in 2000 whatever it was 9 10 that wasn't i don't think anyway that i knew of a buzzword at the time and that was introduced to me and through lisa and, and this uh these classes and and i i latched onto that i had just was so excited to think about such a way of doing it mostly because she kind of talked about how and it had to do with mindfulness and awareness and stuff and it's funny now that it's become a buzzword I don't like the word anymore and I think it's maybe because it frustrates me it has the same thing where is meditation where you should be grateful okay (laughs) that's really hard to do when things are going wrong you know or that or things are just stupid (laughs) you know it's difficult to do that and not have a way around around those things so I, i it's really important to me that it becomes accessible it's explained in some form and then you make your own because it's going to be different for everybody um so that's probably the most resistance i've run into on that and then sometimes it's just scary to be and i use the word scary purposefully scary to be quiet with oneself and that's legitimate and valid and everybody needs to you know i hope that they can embrace that and realize that that's a process and it's okay if it only lasts two seconds you know there's a lot of stuff going on here I love that you you said that because I was thinking the same thing. It's it's scary to to sit with yourself to be present, and I think it's scary to uh, explore your body in that way. It's it it can be. Scary. I think a lot of people. I I'll say you know, I was included in this for a long time, but I didn't know how. I had carried tension for so long, and I didn't know what it was like to not have tension until um, I started doing Alexander technique, and and that was a language that that helped me a lot. And now I, I have, because of that language, because of that practice, I have an, I have an in into how to regulate and maintain. I really love that you use the word language because our body and mind speak a language and we have to learn it. That's all. I mean, I simplified that's all. Like, that's just so easy, but it is in a way that, that easy if you accept that, that you just have to figure out what it, what it needs and what it's saying to you. And then you respond to that accordingly. And if you if someone else was having those challenges or as i used in the class you know the puppy you know metaphor of the of the brain running all over the place 
I would hope anyway, you're not going to beat the puppy. And so if you look at it as I just don't understand the language, I just need to get on track with what this language is. And then it's not quite so daunting. It's a lot, but it's not as daunting. And you're also, hopefully, we are also not so negative about our quote unquote failures, because they're not. Their process is forward. They didn't do the thing you wanted, but that's okay. It got you to the next step. So none of them are failures. If you want to go woo woo. <laughs> yeah. Um, you offer private personalized sessions in yoga um, to anyone, not just musicians, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. I do. They're my favorite. The, the group ones are, are cool and everything, but it's really neat to work with someone on whatever they want to work on. Um, and, you know, in person is great, but Zoom is wonderful or whatever version of things online um, can, can also be used. And, and it, it's so tailored that way, you know, and we become a partnership in this. And then I stand back and let the person be whatever they're going to be. So it's a really, it's a very inspiring and, and cool thing, an honor to witness in a way. I'm, I'm just there to facilitate and then they figure something out and and watching that discovery is really inspiring sometimes. Yeah. I'm curious for my own teaching. I'm a teacher as well. I try to incorporate singing into a lot of my lessons with my piano and composition students because I feel that's a way for them to gain access to their, their body, to understand music in a different way. Um, how, how can teachers start to approach maybe some more basic concepts of yoga into their lessons before they decide to get certified and teach for thousands of hours like you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's actually relatively easy. It, it requires thought, but you don't have to have a ton of training. I would I would first, I mean, my first recommendation would be to start on yourself because then you know what kind of things might be noticeable and then work then from there with the students. Um, that way you're kind of semi-aware. But physically, um, and I and I do sep I don't I don't mean to separate them in that like we'll talk physical and we'll talk mental because they they are connected and the mind manifests in the body and backwards and so there's I don't mean to separate it but everybody has again that language as you that perfect word and so some people are going to be better with or feel more comfortable with physical than mental um, and vice versa but for for the physical side of things we use our body no matter what instrument we play I happen to be flute but it doesn't matter we use our body constantly when we're performing in so many different ways and if we are not in resonance with the instrument we're in then we're actually blocking vibrations because sound travels through things and if we're tense and tight and stuff we're not actually allowing the full resonance of our instrument whatever instrument that is so figuring out what part of you possibly could be tense you know looking around in there while you're playing warm-ups is instead of listening to your long tones or whatever it is you're doing what if you listen down here to your body? Oh my gosh, my arms are tied or my legs are tied. And then that's where you start with an idea of, oh, well, what if I just move around? Okay, my legs are tight. What if I just bent my knees up and down? What if I just swayed side to side? You know, what if, if my shoulders are tight? What if while I'm playing, I roll my shoulders and move them around, even though that's not what you're supposed to do, but that's the idea. If you can't find a spot that is tight, because sometimes it's hard to feel. Sometimes we don't feel sensation and, and that's not wrong either. There is no wrong here. If you don't feel sensation, then just pick anything. And I mean, and, and start large, my arms, my legs, my feet, yeah, could be my neck, 
um, and move that thing, whatever you've chosen, and and in a friendly, slow way, you know, and and, and not in giant movements at first, and just see what it does when you're playing, and you're you can do it by, I'm moving and I feel such and such happen. Oh my gosh, I released something. How cool! Or I feel nothing, um, but I can hear in my sound that it's fluctuating, or it's moving, or it's opening, or it's closing. You know, maybe you actually made it tighter. So that becomes an experiment. And so that's why I say the teacher could do it first and be like, oh, cool, neat, and then apply that. Then on the, the mental side, in that same long tone, I mean, the fact that you're focusing on, say, your leg while you're playing long tones or scales um, is a really interesting choice. You start practicing choice of what your head is doing versus I'm supposed to listen to my scales, but you're actually thinking about how you need to eat lunch and then you have to go to the store and then blah, 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 you know, and it just wanders. But if you're specifically choosing, you're practicing that, um, which helps build on the idea that when you're in performance and you're freaking out, perhaps I choose to focus on my leg because then it's grounding me or I choose to focus on this melody and the, what I'm going to do with the vibrato at that single little moment, because it's the most beautiful moment in the thing and you're so busy thinking about it then all of a sudden you're three pages later that's a jump forward in time but that's kind of how you build it let's hear another work by one of the composer participants this is states of nostalgia by sophia weisman <laughs>
talk about being um, a new music advocate sounds like a big buzzword and big, you know, thing. It does, doesn't it? We so, can't escape them. A, a, a new music performer, daring enough to perform new music, what that's like to work with composers today writing new music. That's one of my favorite things to do because, I mean, I, and I love the greats and, and the non quote unquote greats, whoever even gets to decide that, but they're gone. And the Traverso, I mean, a lot of the stuff that we do is based on historical practices that we assume are correct. And they're probably pretty close, but we weren't there, you know, so we don't know. And so to actually get to sit with somebody and, and that's what's been so cool about this, this week is getting to sit with these composers who, who then hear what they've written and either are, you can see their face change as they're like, oh my God, that's what that sounds like. And that's, that's exciting. Or they're like, wait, um, that doesn't work, you know, and and um, and everything in between. And so then to get to just be nerdy and chat about, well, what did you want instead? And then this is how one could do that, or is this more effective, or or whatever. And we're all learning, man, you know, and and figuring it out. And then we end up at the same spot, hopefully, together. And I guess I just kind of really enjoy facilitating. I don't write music. I, I don't. It, it's just not. I just don't work that way. Um, I like other people to do it and then I'll, I'll play it. And I like getting to facilitate someone else's creative thought, partially because I don't have them in the same way myself. So just thinking that someone else is doing that is so cool. I like to see then how it develops and watch it become something. And then I, I got to honor, I'm honor, I got to actually do that for the person and create the thing that they were hoping for, hopefully. You know, that's the goal. Plus the the idea of, of exploring sound and rhythm as as another aspect of things. I, I think rhythm is incredibly musical and it's inherent to our body. And so the old stuff can be really explored that way too, but the new things that people are coming out with is really neat, which is also why, as you mentioned, I encourage writing for the auxiliaries and for Traverso, because if you're wanting a new sound, then we end up adding extended techniques, which is great. But what if that extended technique could be found just by switching instruments? There's not necessarily a need to create the new sound. Maybe you want to, and that's great, but it might be right there in that case next to you, you know? So yeah, it's really just an exploration of sound, which is kind of refreshing in a way. I want to ask about your program, which, uh, like I said, was all new works for me. And I was really, really blown away by it. Um, I had no idea you were going to- music. Yes such cool music many of the pieces not all of them for flute and electronics i wanted to ask about cycling by Panyaros pokoras very cool piece this is one that you you had excerpts in your extended techniques lecture how did you come across this piece uh actually chad um i i played it um oh some years ago <laughs> on uh on a recital for a tnme that was a flute and electronics, not all of it, some of it was acoustic, um, that we went across Texas and we did it, I think, five times. And he introduced me to it. I hadn't heard of it. Um, and I live in the same area. Um, the composer lives in Denton and is, is at UNT. But I just hadn't hadn't heard about it. And uh, that was actually my first electronics concert. I'd never done anything with it. So that was my introduction and <laughs> trial by fire, I guess. So yeah, it's thanks to him, truly, because I wouldn't, I don't know that I would have known about it. It's a very neat piece. And what's so cool about it is that it's extremely personalizable. It's very clear what you're supposed to do. But when you hit 
certain things. Some of that's dependent on which harmonic you happen to hit at the time and what your air is doing and stuff. So how I played it the other day is not remotely how I played it the other times at, at, on, those, on that tour. And I'm sure that 25 other people could line up and do it a totally different way just because of timing and stuff. It's it's a neat combo of, of I don't like the word dictated, but I don't know what else to call it. Um, this clear writing, I suppose, with the performer involved in terms of choice. So it's really, and it's neat sounding. <laughs> Talk about exploration of sound. Yeah, and with the with the reverb and amplification, it's really cool. Yeah, yeah, I mean, uh... I, I don't want to use the word thrill ride, but as a, as a, as a listener, it kind of felt like a thrill ride. Oh, that's so good. I'm glad. That's a great word for it. Yeah. Cycling yeah. downhill, maybe. I don't know. You know, it was. He actually, he includes some cool, um, I, I'll actually just tell you what they are. Um, the beginning is riding the pedals and then it's feel the wind, open the wings and crossing the valley. So it's got these little programmatic moments in there that that tell you what you're what you're hearing in a way or what you're trying to convey um of course and I, and those aren't included in the program it's up to the listener to just think about the last time they were on a bike or or whatever so it's a it's a neat semi programmatic in a way i want to ask about another piece that you programmed this was a polyphonia concreta by marcelo toledo Wow. What a, <laughs> so cool. <laughs> oh my gosh. Such a very cool piece for amplified bass flute. I was trying to think if there was, I want to see the score at some point. I'm going to have to try to get my hands on the score. Is there a single like uh, traditionally notated, you know, note in that piece or is it all extended techniques? It's all extended techniques and, and it's all inside the flute. So you turn the mouthpiece in and you just play through the, the lip plate, the, through the hole. And, uh, and occasionally then you come out and you blow outward to make the sh type sounds, but that's the only times you're outside of the flute. So you really become in, become part of the flute in a lot of ways. And actually this is, so you might notice on the program, it's the second one. So the first one, I heard it played by Mariana Gariazzo, who's just a phenomenal player. And I think she may have premiered that one and she's recorded that. And that one is similar, but it's more free. Um, he's got it marked in a more free hand. There's not like specific notes to finger and stuff in certain spots sometimes, yes. And so the, it's up to the performer to make some decisions about that. And this one is more, is very metered and very clear in terms of note choice and stuff. So he's changed it to be clearer from from his point of view and so this was the world premiere of the second version of it and then i'm hoping i've been chatting with him i'm hoping that maybe we can work on some recordings of it and stuff he's he's lovely to work with and he was so helpful about some of the all some of the all of the extended techniques in it so he's uh highly recommend his works he's really cool he's a really good person yeah i was floored listening to that piece really That's how i felt the first time i heard mariana which yeah. is why when Chad was like, what kind of things do you want to play? I sent him a whole bunch of options, just like a ton of things. And then he picked based on certain things they needed. But I included that one because the first time I heard her do it, I was like, that's possible. What is this? You know, and so I just wanted mainly wanted to hear Chad, so Chad's reaction to it. And then it ended up being on there. Yes. <laughs> so. Yeah, I don't think um, bass flute advocate is quite as buzzy as new music advocate. Um, but I think you got a lot of people really excited about the bass flute from that piece and, and from your lecture. 
to, I think I heard so many people asking about that instrument in particular. Did you get a chance to um, have a workshop with the students? Yeah, I wouldn't, I mean, it was an informal gathering of whoever wanted to come because that was, that was impromptu. People were so interested that I thought, well, I need to answer some questions if there are any or whatever. And then it was a full room of, of people. And we had all sorts of questions. It was mostly just us screwing around and can you do this? And then I'd figure it out. And then can you do this? And then I'd figure it out. And so they kind of heard what you could do, which is neat. I, I, I do love the sound effects you can get. It's also just a plain old gorgeous instrument. So is alto. And so I want them to explore, them meaning any composer, I suppose, um, to explore all the sound effects. I also would love some stuff written that's just using the sound of the flute because it's really beautiful.
That's all for today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please keep your eyes open for Texas New Music Festival 2023 Part 2. That episode will be coming anytime now. I want to give a few very special thank yous. First, to audio wizard Trey Harris in Houston for procuring tracks for us. And I want to thank all of the performers at Texas New Music Ensemble for their wonderful music. I really appreciate Chad and Meg taking the time to speak with me. I'm Stephen Anthony Rawson. Relevant Tones is a production of Access Contemporary Music, a nonprofit organization with the mission of bringing musical creativity to life every day. Come find out more at acmusic.org.